I welcome you to Online Chapel at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm Chuck Lawless. I'm Dean of Doctoral Studies and Vice President of Spiritual Formation here at Southeastern. And we are so thankful today that many of our students and our alumni and others around the world are joining in watching now. Part of my role as Vice President of Spiritual Formation is to lead our campus in being a praying campus. Our president, Dr. Danny Aiken, uh, pushes us to be a Great Commission seminary and a praying seminary. He wants us to be both. And so in these difficult days, we would love the privilege of praying for you. So if you have a prayer need today, I invite you to go to sebts.edu slash prayer and share with us your request. Those requests come to me and I'll pray for you. I forward them to our leadership team and they will pray for you. Our Southeastern family will pray for you. We want you to know that we are here to take you before the Father. Share your concerns and let us pray. Well, I'm honored today to introduce our chapel speaker, Dr. Walter Strickland, who is Assistant Professor of Systematic and Contextual Theology and Associate Vice President for Diversity at Southeastern. Dr. Strickland is a man of God with a passion to reach people and to influence culture for the gospel and we look forward to hearing the word from him. Now, let's be encouraged by the reading of God's word. We have one of our alumni who's going to read Psalm 119, verses 33 to 36. In this psalm, in this particular part of the psalm, we hear the psalmist cry out for an understanding of God's word. And not only an understanding of God's word, but also a willingness to obey God's word. Now hear the word of the Lord. My name is Moises Gomez, and I am a Southeastern alumnus from 2018. I serve as a Spanish pastor in First Baptist Church of Irving in Irving, Dallas County, Texas. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 119, 33 to 36. Teach me, Lord, the meaning of your status, and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instruction, and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. Help me stay on the path of your commands, for I take pleasure in it. Turn my heart to your decrees and not to the dishonored prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take time now to quiet our hearts and let's prepare for hearing God's word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, your mercy, your grace, your love. We thank you, God, for your word that we are about to hear. We thank you that we have your word, all of it, in our language, in our hands, and we have the freedom to study it and hear it together. Lord, help us not to take that gift for granted. I pray for my friend, Walter Strickland. I pray that you would empower him, that you would grant him wisdom and clarity of mind and strength of voice and Lord, help him just to bring your word to us, and to open it to us. And then God, make us ready to hear. Make us willing, Lord, to, to allow your spirit to convict us and change us and challenge us and mold us. And 
Lord, may we find strength in your word today. Strength that allows us to continue to be witnesses to our communities and to the nations, even in these unusual days. Thank you, God, for being a God who hears us as we pray and who welcomes us into your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
chapter 2 and Paul reminds us in verse 9 he says therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father see it's Jesus and only Jesus, who is worthy to bear that name. His very name means salvation. And so as we continue to sing and just cast all of our devotion and all of our praise on him, let's do that with the mentality that Jesus and Jesus alone deserves that name and that title, Jesus Christ. Let's worship him together.
Thank you for joining me in chapel today. Um, I do pray that our time together would be encouraging to you as we are definitely press, um, uh, pressing into unprecedented times. And I pray that the word of God will be an encouragement to you. So if you have your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 2. We'll be in verses 6 through 15 in a sermon entitled Salvation Through Christ Alone. So as you're turning there, uh, I'll just give an opening illustration to help set the scene for what the Apostle Paul is trying to teach us here. And in several states, including North Carolina, when police officers make a traffic stop, they protect themselves by pulling their squad car over uh, so cars can't hit them uh, as they're talking to the driver. Or they'll go to the other side of the car on the passenger side in order to talk to the driver from there. It's apparent that people continue to hit police officers doing routine traffic stops. And so I would venture to say that these incidences are altogether uh, unintentional. But the problem with these well-intended citizens is that their strategy for avoiding the officer has been all wrong. So in their best effort to avoid the cop, many of the, the drivers fixated on the police officer to avoid hitting them rather than fo focusing on staying on the road. So I would almost guarantee you if you interviewed these folks who have hit uh, police officers and asked them about how many times they swerved randomly to the right or to the left uh, in, in the last month, they would say almost never. So the problem is a matter of priority. And so in these tragic moments, drivers desperately put their energy into the wrong thing, avoiding something rather than being laser focused on the goal. And so in this situation, the, the matter is staying on the road. But in this text and in this, in this book as a whole, Paul focuses our gaze on Christ rather than trying to have us miss the false truths on either side of the path. So the big idea here is that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae because their doctrine of salvation was being attacked by heresy. There were some who were adding secular philosophies to the message of Christ dying, dying and being resurrected for their sins. Still others were exchanging the power of the gospel for something else altogether. So in response, Paul gives the church in Colossae a strategy that I think would be helpful for, helpful for drivers who are trying not to hit police officers during a traffic stop. So he focused them on the goal. And we see him beginning this in chapter 1, verses 15, and he, and he goes uh, and he continues this through chapter 2, verse 15. He uses, um, he, he, uh, Paul used this, uh, this, these, these texts to focus us on Christ, raising him so high that nothing else uh, placing our faith in those things make no sense. So let's look at the uh, chapter 1, verses 15 and following. Paul says, He is in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or uh, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and he is in all things and in him all things hold together. And he is uh, the head of the body, which is the church. And he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. And he goes on and on and on, just raising Christ higher and higher. And after carrying on, carrying on like this for a while, Paul only offers a single verse about being taken captive to philosophies and empty deceit. So what do we learn here? That if we are thoroughly enchanted with Christ, that nothing will be uh, taking us captive to make us swerve to the left or to the right. And so the proportionality of Paul's message matters. Focus on the goal rather than what you're trying to miss. And so Paul's message here is in lockstep with the idea of faith is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So turning to our text in verses uh, 6 and 7, we see what I'm going to call our introductory climax. And it says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. So I use the word introduction and climax here uh, intentionally. It's intentionally puzzling because although this is the uh, first couple of verses of the text today, these, these two verses summarize the message of the book to of the Colossians. And so these verses... Uh, Paul draws upon his high Christology and then transitions later in the text or in this book to practical matters. Let's look at verse 6 once again. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord. Paul uses two ideas or two uh, uh, ways of talking about this that are, that are not common in his corpus. First, he says that believers have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, as the ESV puts it. So the sentence construction here is significant because it emphasizes that which is at the end, which is the Lord. Uh, it, it, you know, essentially, Paul is trying to stress the fact that they receive Christ Jesus, the one who is the Savior, the one who gives us salvation. And so later on, he says, you know what? You know, we receive not just, you know, uh, the, the teaching or the gospel or a word, but we receive Christ himself. So this is the one that we receive. This person, the one from chapter 1, verses 15 and following, who is in the image of the invisible God. We receive the one who is the firstborn of all creation. We receive the one who holds all things together when we come to the moment of salvation. What he's trying to say is Christ is enough. So what do we do now? We walk in him. The continuous nature of walking is important to making Christ Lord over our life. There's two facets to this. The first is reasoning, and the second is ethical. The first is walking in Christ, which is, offers us reason to see the world from a Christian perspective, from a biblical worldview, and we need to be disciplined in what we believe, no doubt. But walking faithfully is not just an intellectual exercise. It has to do with uh, deploying biblical reasoning in an appropriate manner. So if you have the right answer but communicate it in an unloving way, your actions or words are can misconstrue the gospel that your lips are proclaiming and your hearers are confused about the message itself. So walking in him is necessary for speaking truth in love. You'll need to be walking in him when your nephew comes out and reveals his new sexual orientation. 
You'll need to be walking with him as you're making difficult decisions as medical technology can, continues to advance as you're in pregnancies or caring for an elderly loved one. We'll need to be walking in him continuously. And in this process, you'll need to be filled and guided by the Holy Spirit, soaked in the word of God and humble enough to be aided by the family of faith. So secondly, after the reasoning portion, there is the ethical activity. This idea of walking in him requires both knowing and doing, which Paul then uh, really drills down in, in the third and fourth chapter of this book. So now transitioning to verse seven to continue our introductory climax, Paul offers two metaphors to illustrate what it means to walk in him. So the first is agrarian and the second one is construction oriented. He says, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. So the first metaphor, rooted and built up in him. The word rooted indicates a once for all planting. And the phrase built up is in the present tense, which suggests the continual growth that is, you know, from that one time planting. In the second metaphor, he says established in the faith, which calls to mind building a foundation that can support the weight of a superstructure. So together, these illustrations drive home the single point that the basis of their salvation, the basis of their faith was just as they were taught based upon Christ himself. So now that we have this faith in Christ established, rooted and built up, it produces thanksgiving. As he, con as he concludes this verse, abounding in thanksgiving. This theme of thanksgiving shows up various times throughout this epistle. And I know it's a subjective reality, but Paul uses it as a, measure, a measuring rod for those who are in Christ. So Christian, are you giving thanks today? Have you taken time to thank God for what he has done for you today? Are you grateful to God for what, how he has sustained you? And even if you are in difficult times, and many of us are today, you know, God is the one who meets us in our pain. He is with you in it, and he is good. And in fact, we serve a God who didn't sort of step aside from pain. He entered into it for our sake. And so the question still remains, Christian, are you giving thanks today? Israel Houghton gives this wonderful illustration about uh, a punching bag that's weighted on the bottom that is really light on top. And after you give it your, your best shot, it just bounces right back up in your face. And so what we, that is trying to say is that, beloved, the adversary might have just tried to hit you with his best shot today. But you are still standing because of the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. And so if you're having trouble figuring out how to start thanking God today, I can give you some examples. You, you can say, thank you, God, for waking me up this morning and for starting me on my way. Thank you, God, because you know me, yet you saved me. Thank you, God, that you know all my faults, yet you are patient with me. And he sees all my wickedness, yet you are kind to me. For those who are found in Christ, we know the true source of joy and thanksgiving. The introductory climax of this text can be summarized in the words of St. Patrick, who I think captures what Paul is trying to get at here. Christ is all. Christ with me. 
Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me. And I'm going to skip ahead because St. Patrick is a little long-winded. And he says, Christ when I lay down and Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye of everyone who sees me, Christ in every, every ear who hears me. Now, Paul has given us the solution. Namely, focus on the goal, focus on Christ. And now, after verses 6 and 7, he gives us the problem in verse 8, the nature of the threat. Verse 8 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul's language here and throughout the rest of the chapter make it clear about the threat uh, of uh, that, that was coming at this church in Colossae. The threat was identified as philosophy and empty deceit, uh, as some translation would say hollow and deceptive philosophies. Interestingly enough, Paul is not against philosophy itself. He's against this particular philosophy that was against the person and work of Christ. So let's examine the nature of this philosophy. And I think there's three aspects that we find in verse 8 that are very helpful to us here. The first is that we understand that it was human. The scripture says it was according to human tradition. Or as the NIV says, it depends on human tradition. And so this heresy represents humanity's attempts to arrive at big T truth. So it's important for us to remember that this admonition does not deny the proper use of tradition within Christianity because in many of our churches we recite the creeds, we, uh, you know, we, we sing the hymns of the faith, but the error that Paul identified is that this hollow philosophy had human ideas as its cornerstone. And for us as Christians, we know that we already have a cornerstone in Jesus Christ. So such philosophies have no ability to free anyone, but only hold us captive to its demands. So it was human. And also we see secondarily, it was elementary the text says it was according to the elemental spirits of the world. So the context of Colossians 2, but specifically in verse 20, it shows us that the elemental spirits of the world are a reference to presiding deities or even national gods that were said to rule the world. These heretical ideas were swirling where, uh, and they were in line with these lesser beings purported by these elemental spirits. And lastly, and then most extensively, it was not Christian. The text says it was not according to Christ. So while the first two are important for us to understand the nature of this philosophy, this third one is vitally important because it now ventures into the realm of heresy technically defined. It's not compat compatible with Christ uh, crucified and resurrected. So it's important that then now we raise the question, how do we determine if something is not according to Christ? especially in with the reality of common grace that complicates the equation because useful ideas can come from both Christians but also non-Christians alike. So let me be clear from the beginning. Common grace doesn't always mean that an entire system of thought is correct. If it, becomes a, if it comes from a worldly perspective, it usually means that its starting point and how non-Christians employ the system of thought diverge from Scripture. But in that process, there are nuggets of helpful realities that are identified. So 
our goal as Christians is to clearly state when an idea's foundations are in common usage are wrong. And with Paul in uh, Acts 17, we can be uh, distressed over its waywardness. We can commend where possible, but then also demonstrate how a person who, who thinks according to Christ engages the idea for God's glory. And in my own life, I'm learning just how clear we have to be when we're, when we're sort of expressing our Christ-centered foundation as we're engaging these sorts of ideas. But if you're still trying to figure out um, this idea of common grace, I'll say it this way. My mama said, a broken clock is right twice a day. And then my dad would say, even a blind squirrel finds a nut. And so all this is a way of saying that common grace is the fact that God bestows his grace on fallen creation and fallen humanity, humanity by upholding and guiding us despite the devastating effects of the fall. So while I'm convinced that ideas that accord with Christ are going to emerge in a concentrated manner from those who are walking in him, uh, this common grace extends to those who are lost. Though, and because of that, non-believers stumble upon bits of truth here and there. I think Colossians, uh, in the second half of uh, or in ch- uh, chapter 2, the second half of verse 2 going into th- chapter 3, or verse 3 are very helpful here. It says, The knowledge of God's mystery, which is, which is Christ, in whom uh, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so Christ is the one who holds all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. And so we should say all truth is God's truth, no matter its origin. And with the missionary theologian, theologian Leslie Newbegin, I say that God is the clue to all that is. So our litmus tests of does it accord with Christ, despite the origin of the idea, the rubric is the same. Does this idea or concept accord with the redemptive plan of God? So Paul's logic is simple. Be so captivated by Christ that uh, that there are no that there's no other truth that has power over us. So let's be so in love with Jesus that the allure of, of of any of these ideas are just nonsense to us and show up as the rot that they are. If we are captivated by Christ, we will see these things that are that are in competition with our Savior's salvation that He grants to us. So as we walk through life. I think there's three ways that we can begin to think about these these threats to our gospel. First, we renounce anything that that denies salvation through Christ alone. We deny anything that denies salvation through Christ alone. Secondly, we reject anything that makes salvation Jesus plus anything else. Reject uh, anything that makes salvation Jesus plus anything else. And then finally, which is the most difficult part, is to sift everything through the rubric of Christ himself. And this sifting is hard work, and it's a continuous activity of the Christian life. So one example of this is through secular philosophy. Uh, while I take my sort of counseling tips in, uh, you know, in, you know, in, in, in best practices from Christian counselors, there are definitely helpful concepts here and there that emerge from the field of psychology um, that Christians can utilize. And so we have to be doing this sifting work, even as we're doing our counseling as those who are ministers of the gospel. So my primary concern in all of this is that we have made our God much too small. 
So we feel as if we have to protect God from the world. And I'm confident that the gospel is public truth, that, uh, that the gospel is uh, so true that we, don't, we just have to let it rip, let it go. The truth will out. And with Paul, I say that we need to recover a humongous view of our God uh, revealed to us in Christ, the one who holds all things together. So now that we've uh, seen what the nature of the threat is, verses 9 and 10, uh, Paul, uh, he responds to this threat. And as anticipated, he exalts Christ. But just a fair warning here, Paul kind of nerds out on sort of Jewish customs and how Christ sort of overcomes it here. So we're about to do a deep dive, but I promise you there's some jewels in here. So verse 9, it says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So in verse 9, it offers, uh, verse 9 offers a hint that the heresy could have been Gnostic in nature believing that the body is bad and that the soul or spirit is good. So Paul's logic in verse 9 was clear to his original audience. If the fullness of God dwelt uh, in bodily form and was without sin, then the body cannot be utterly bad. If the fullness of God dwelt bodily in bodily form and was without sin, then the body is not utterly bad. And he goes on and says in verse 10, <clears throat> Uh, and you have been filled with him who, uh, who, is, who is the head of all rule and authority. So Paul uses the same Greek word for filled in verse 10 as he did in verse 9 when he said, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And this wordplay screams that Jesus was fully God. And believers are fully complete in him. So salvation, as he's trying to illustrate again, is through Christ alone. So if, uh, if the fullness of, uh, of God dwelt in bodily form, then we are filled with that same God. And so we are all set. We don't need anything from any other philosophy. Salvation is through Christ alone. And every idea or system bows its proverbial knee to our Savior. And second... Uh, the second half of the verse uh, affirms that there is that th there are uh, no legitimate rivals to our God. He is supreme. So now, as we uh, in these in these remaining verses, Paul illustrates the authority of Christ over something that would be very familiar to his audience, and that's uh, Judaism. He uh, demonstrates Christ's preeminence over the system of the law that it proposes, and this in this. Paul emphasizes that there's no system over which Christ is not Lord. And particularly, particularly he fulfills this, which is why it's valuable. So look to verses uh, uh, 11 through 14 for me, where uh, he insists that Christ is greater than Judaism. Verses 11 and 12 say this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in, uh, faith in the powerful work of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul here juxtaposes, uh, makes a juxtaposition between circumcision and baptism, one being the initial uh, act of obedience to the law, and the other being an initial act of obedience to uh, you know, the Christian faith and Christian obedience. 
So first he says that Christ was victorious over the law and its requirements like circumcision. And so believers fulfill the law in Christ and circumcision is no longer therefore necessary. And then so Paul then transitions to baptism and he proclaims that baptism has meaning because Christ is resurrected from the dead. So in the aha moment here, what he is trying to say is that Paul is saying that not a hollow philosophy nor a human tradition has fulfilled the demands of the Jewish legal system or gave baptism its meaning. It's Christ who's done that and Christ alone. Verses 13 and 14 say this, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Uh, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Paul makes it clear that salvation is God's action on behalf of believers. There's no pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps in this regard. These words, dead and uncircumcision, they refer to the same condition, one that is reversed in our salvation in Christ alone and in nothing else. And so you see, Paul uh, knows that the function of the law was to demonstrate how short we have fallen, and it's not outlining a way in which we can save ourselves. And so it's not sort of providing a way for us to be worthy of our Savior's attention, but to show us how wrong we are. So this gives us the, the hint that her, the heresy was a mess with legalism. And legalism wrongly forms a, a contractual relationship between people and God, whereby God can be pleased by human effort. This is not the way of Christ. So this gives us uh, a hint that uh, now we see that Paul is beginning to transition now. And after demonstrating Christ's supremacy over the Jewish practices uh, bound up in the law, Paul concludes uh, this section with um, a, a, a word of triumph. In verse 15, he says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So in the end... The Savior disgraces his enemies in his resurrection, and he exposes them to eternal public shame. And so this illustration that Paul marshals here is the imagery here of a, when, a, when one king conquers another king and they're victorious, they strip them of all of the vestiges of their authority. And here it's the royal robe. So the imagery that Paul uses here portrays the action of God stripping the, his enemies of its royal facade, saying philosophies, hollow deceit, anything else that's vying for the reality of salvation, you have no more ability to dupe people, to trick people. He's, he's exposing them for what they are, defeated. Christ has triumphed over these things by the cross. So there's three uh, significant applications here. And just to give you a heads up, I'm about to mix all kinds of metaphors. And so I apologize in advance, but I'm really not sorry. So uh, for those who have a tendency for, fo for focusing on what we're trying to avoid, this is the person who is the more legalistic of, in, the, in the bunch. Rather than keeping your eyes on the road itself, please know that our self-centered tendencies lure us into keeping score, recording how many police officers we've not hit, rather than celebrating remaining on the path or on the way of Christ himself. 
the most devastating part in all this is that uh, even if you miss the officer, you still might not be on the narrow way. Or I should say it this way, just because you're not captive to philosophies and empty deceit does not mean that you're captive to Christ. In fact, we, we create rules and we create regulations that exalt ourselves because we've been able to keep uh, this form of, uh, you know, of, 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 of religiosity. Colossians chapter 2, verses uh, 20 to 23 <clears throat> are very instructive here. And they say, if you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you live as if they still belong to, to the world? Why do you submit to, uh, to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch that legalistic reality. We, we, we are living as if we are still bound up to them. But all these regulations in verse uh, 22 refer to what has been destined to perish by being used up. They are uh, they are human commands and doctrines, although these, and that these is these people, have a reputation of wisdom by promoting self-made religion and false humility and severe treatment of the body. Get this, they are not of any value for curbing self-indulgence. So in essence, Paul is saying that those who keep a legalistic distance stopped acting like secular philosophies have power over you. They don't. Stay on the path, believer. Walk upright because you are victorious in Christ. Don't put all these extra uh, legal uh, things to bind you up, to keep you away from there. All you have to do is walk by. It no longer has power over you. It no longer has the ability to yank you off the road if you are just enamored with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, to the person who is free in Christ, I commend uh, Colossians chapter 3 to you. It's very helpful. So for those of you who are not anticipated by the philosophies of this world, first of all, I would say be wise in your engagement with culture. Don't do it alone. Surround yourself with those who are trying to live according to Christ because if you are isolated, we have an enemy who will devour you. But also, if you felt a bit of self-righteousness as I was talking to the legalists, don't be so quick to belittle them. Beware of getting puffed up, because that's pride. In fact, the Apostle Paul gives, gives us a word here in chapter 3, verse 12 of uh, Colossians. And he says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, uh, to which you are called in one body, rule your hearts and be, here's that word again, thankful. Love your brothers and sisters. We are family. Don't push them away. Love them, especially in, the, in, in, in an era that's so polarized and being a mean truth teller is considered to be a virtue. We have to put on love. And then thirdly, to the unbeliever, come to Christ as Lord. He is enough. 
He is the one who has triumphed, and he is the one who, is, who can be with you. He is the one who has defeated everything that ails you. He is the one who conquered all that troubles you. Christ is the one who has defeated your real enemy, who is Satan. And so what we're trying to say here is if you are feeling the weight of your sin, if you are feeling your world crashing in on you, the one who has caused it to crash in on you, the one who is causing you to sort of bear up by yourself is the adversary, but there is one who has defeated him. His name is Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lord that Paul has told us about uh, in, in such high and lofty language in Colossians chapter one and continuing in chapter two, he's the one who can save you. He's the one who has dealt with the sin that you have committed. He has, you know, died the death that was required by that rebellion and sin against God. So you can receive his death and, and or give him your sin and take his life on your behalf. So turn to Jesus today because he is not, uh, he is enough. Let us be captive to Christ today. Let us be captive to Christ because as Paul is saying here, he is greater than any philosophy, any any sort of human tradition because he is enough. Thanks be to God for his goodness to us.
We want to spend some time together in extended prayer. And here's how I want to do this. I want you to, to be a part of our prayer team. And so I'm going to guide us in a time of prayer. And I'm going to ask you to follow my lead, that wherever you are around the world, that you pause now, you lay aside everything else, and you just seek the Lord with us. And so let's bow together for prayer. I'll guide us through the process. You pray, and at the end, I'll conclude with a with a time of prayer. So let's pray together. And I invite you first to pray for our students and our alumni affected by COVID-19 around the world. Take just a few minutes and, and pray for them now.
Next, I invite you to pray for churches and for pastors and church leaders facing tough decisions and an economic downfall. And right now we can't meet, we can't gather together. We need to be lifting up those who lead us. And so you think about your own pastor, your own pastoral staff and pray for them and pray for other pastors and leaders that you know. Let's, let's pray. Next, we need to intercede for government leaders from the local level to the state level, the national level, and ultimately to the global level as leaders around the world are, are making tough decisions and we're commanded to pray for those. And so let's spend some time now praying for those who lead us. We know that healthcare professionals are fulfilling their calling, but they're putting themselves in places of risk. And so we need to pray for them. If you know a doctor or a nurse or others who are in that field and you want to intercede for them by name, I encourage you to do that. If not, pray for those in your community who are serving in hospitals or doctor's offices. Let's pray for those who help us uh, with regard to our health. Then I invite you to pray for our missionaries who long to take the gospel to a lost world, but many of our missionaries are themselves in lockdown situations because of this COVID-19 crisis. And so they, they, they deeply desire to be out among the people and, and yet they can't do that right now. And so they're seeking new ways to get the gospel to people. They need our prayers. And so let's pray for them for just a little bit. And then I, I think of the four billion plus people in the world who have little or no access to the gospel. 
some of whom are facing this same crisis that uh, we face with this virus, but without hope. And so who's praying that they would hear the gospel and respond in faith and repentance? We need to be praying. So I encourage you even now to lift up the unreached people around the world, and then I'll lead us in our prayer. 